welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Dr. Henneberg says that he has the, the best job in all of the medical profession, and that is he's an obstetrician, and he delivers babies for a life, and he's happy to be able to give newborns to their moms and dads. Don't you think that's a happy job? Now, there's something refreshing, isn't there? Something innocent, something delicate, something exquisite about a newborn. And that begs the question that old Nicodemus asked a long time ago of Jesus, how can a person be born when he is old? Can an old geezer come out looking brand new? Can an old woman actually be a new creation every day? Can an old guy come out new as a happy new creation? That's the question this morning we want to ask. And there's some interesting new scientific news that has come out, which is a confirmation of this. Uh, a team of American and Swedish scientists report that they have found positive evidence for the first time that old people grow new brain cells overturning years of conventional wisdom. The new growth was discovered in the hypocamus, part of the brain, the center of learning and memory in the brain. It's called neurogenesis. Cells were, in fact, dividing and producing new mature neurons as well. This process continues until death. There's hope for old people. Things we thought were ending are not ending, say the scientists. Well, when does one start getting old? When you're seven years old? When you're eight years old? Because already your brain paths have begun forming some pretty ugly habits, creating selfishness, loveless thoughts, emotional patterns that are bad, addictions that continue throughout life, unless a new life develops that Jesus calls being born again. Now comes the scientific underpinning that helps us believe what the Bible has said all along, that you can repent at any time you are willing to choose to respond to the Holy Spirit. The good news is that the Holy Spirit never gives up on you. He never gives up on me. The biggest problem that we humans have is learning how to love when you don't know how to love. And when the delicate mental and emotional processes have been stunted, when they've been cauterized, in childhood and youth, and you think, oh boy, it's no use, I can't change. But the solution is very simple. Jesus invites us to look upon him. He says, behold what manner of love 
the Father has bestowed upon you. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, in so doing, you begin to comprehend. We're invited to comprehend the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ. Paul bids us to comprehend it in Ephesians chapter 3. So the simple choice to look, to comprehend, it starts the new cells growing. And things you thought were ending, they're beginning. It's called the new birth. You're learning the love that is revealed in Jesus Christ. You begin to comprehend those seven steps that Jesus took still lower and lower in order to reach us where we are at here on this earth. And that is very good news. Well, in going through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I find that there's only once that Jesus said we must do something. Jesus said we must experience something. And then it turns out that what we must do is something that we cannot do ourselves. You remember Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And in only one other place in the New Testament are we told we must do something, and that is in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, where we are told, he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them which diligently seek him. And so when the jailers ask Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? How did they answer there in Acts chapter 16? They said, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believe. They were, were Paul and Silas, were they teaching easy believism then? Well, let's just face it, shall we? In John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus teaches exactly the same thing. Does Jesus, in John 3, 16, list a bunch of do's that we have to do in order to be saved? I think if we face the reality of it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, Jesus said we must believe. And was Jesus teaching only easy believism? And secondly, when we look at Hebrews chapter eleven six, it says we must believe. It's stating the one and the only thing that Scripture tells us we must do. And of course, the Scriptures cannot be broken. We can't force the Bible into saying that it is salvation by faith and by works. No way does the Bible teach that. It teaches salvation by grace through faith. It also teaches faith which works by love. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. And thirdly, our English Bibles translate what Jesus said in John 3, 7 as you must be born again. And so to me, that word must has sometimes come across as a demand that I must do something. And unless I do it, I won't even be able to see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. The problem is, I don't know how to do something that I must do. Can I give birth to myself? I don't know how to do that. I do not know how to give birth to myself. I must be born again, however. 
And I've had evangelists tell me three things that I must do. I've been told I must study the Word of God more and the spirit of prophecy. I must pray more. I must witness to my faith more. But how can I know when I have studied enough and prayed enough and shared my faith enough So am I to think of Jesus as demanding that I do something that I don't know how to do? And if I can't do it, he's going to pull the trigger on me. Well, when Jesus says, we must be born again, he's not talking about a works program. He's not talking about salvation by works. It can't be. Nobody can born himself. Please forgive me, I know that doesn't sound right in that sentence, but nobody can birth themselves or give birth to themselves. But nevertheless, we must be born, and it is a passive verb there. And who does, that begs the question, well, who does the conceiving? Who does the giving of the birth? And Jesus says in verse 8, as you can't tell where the wind comes from or it goes, so is everyone who is born of who? The Spirit. I cannot born myself. I cannot birth myself. The birthing comes from the Holy Spirit. And it is he who conceives in you the new life. He gives new birth. He gives a new heart. You welcome the new birth. You let it happen. And you stop aborting the seeds of the Holy Spirit that are scattered into your heart. That we have been doing all of our lives, haven't we? Aborting the good news seeds, aborting the new birth that the Lord wants to bring to us daily. You might call it cooperation if you wish, but please don't think of it as being 50% your own Savior. You cooperate by letting him do his blessed will in you, by letting him born you again. And when all is said and done at last, to him alone will be given all of the glory for the new birth. Now, should one be worried about whether he is born again? The answer to that is no. But here is another question. But should one be seriously concerned about whether he is truly converted? And the answer to that question is yes. Because right up to the moment that the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus to death, the Apostle Peter was just dead sure that he was thoroughly converted. The Apostle Peter thought he was absolutely converted. And when Jesus told him on Thursday night that he was not converted, Peter was upset. And he loudly protested and argued with the Lord that he was wrong. He said, I am thoroughly born again. And so in his unconscious understanding, in his, rather in his conscious understanding, he sincerely believed that he was already converted, but all it took was a beautiful little lass who challenged his identity with Christ, and then his unconscious motivations took over, and he denied Christ with vile cursings and swearings. 
Peter didn't know unconsciously that he wasn't truly converted. That's something he didn't know about himself. And one can be very highly educated and know lots of things and yet do not know that about themselves. And who is Peter? Anyone who belongs to that seventh church of world history. You know which church we're talking about in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21? The church of the Laodiceans. Peter is the church of the Laodiceans. Well, more particularly, anyone who is part of the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, which is a reference to the stars of the church. That's the leaders of the church. Because Jesus tells us, frankly, that Peter is indeed our patron saint. He is our patron saint. He says, you say, I am rich. I become wealthy. By some historical enrichment and have need of nothing and do not know that you are, and the Greek word there, you are, is the word H-O in Greek. You are the one, the one church of all of the sequence of seven that is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Of all the seven churches of history, Laodicea is the one. Strutting around on the stage of the universe of the world, thinking they have the emperor's clothes on, and naked. And poor Peter made a fool of himself, thinking he was rich, thinking he was born again, thinking he had experience, thinking he had knowledge. He even argued with the omniscient, omniscient Lord, the Lord who knows all things about the heart. Peter contradicted the Lord as if to say, Lord, you don't know me. Give me a chance. I'll prove to you. I am the most devoted follower that you have. I've been baptized. I've been ordained to the ministry. I have cast out devils in your name. I have finished my three and a half years of seminary training with cum laude under you as teacher. I have my doctoral diploma. I really understand your gospel, and I teach it powerfully. Lord, do you think that I need to go back to the spiritual kindergarten and start all over and get born again? You're wrong, Lord. Sadly, the Lord had to tell him plainly and honestly in Luke chapter 22 and verse 32, Peter, when you are converted, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Now, why should we be concerned about our true conversion? Why should we be concerned about whether we are truly converted or not? Well, it's not because of craven fear lest we won't make it into the kingdom. Actually, it's for a very far more important reason because lest in our cocksure, unconscious selfishness we should bring shame upon Jesus. 
in these closing hours of earth's history in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. That's putting it out there plainly. Because the best Laodicean in the world can well pray that prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Edward R. Sill probably had an even better idea in his heart-wrenching poem, O Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. That's a good prayer, too. Well, is it hard work to be born again? We know that we need to be changed from the inside out. Years of being what we have made us has set us up in our ways. We've been in these neurological brain pathways for a long way, and our problems are a part of us through and through, whether it's our desires and our appetites or our jealousies or whatever vice has a hold on us. How, how can we become really different than what we just are? It's easy to change the color of our hair, but we can't change the color of our eyes. If we were born to be short, then we can't change ourselves to become taller. And for a selfish person to become unselfish just seems to be impossible. And most poignantly, for a lustful, sexually impure person, for a rapist, for an abuser to become pure in heart, why, that seems to be totally impossible. That's what our justice system tells us. You can't change a person like that. And now here comes Jesus telling us that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To many people, this just sounds like the death knell for them. I am what I am. There's no way I can be different. If only blue-eyed people can enter heaven, then I'm sunk, for I'm a brown eyes. Well, sit down. Read John chapter 3. Nicodemus asked precisely those same questions And you're going to be surprised how much better is Jesus' good news of the new birth than what we have thought it is. Because of what Jesus has accomplished on his cross, the Holy Spirit has become everyone's new parents. He is the divine obstetrician. And he's in the daily work of birthing you again and again. When the Holy Spirit impregnated the Virgin Mary to bring Jesus to birth, he impregnated everyone with a divine seed of a new life to be formed within. The new birth is not you birthing yourself anew. Excuse me for using that word birthing. It is like the wind that bloweth where it listeth, saith Jesus. So is everyone that is born of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is constantly casting Seeds into human hearts. Christ is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The seed is the light of the good news of Christ. So don't practice abortion with it. Don't hinder it. Don't practice abortion on the new life that the Holy Spirit is constantly begetting within you. Stop resisting him. If you choose darkness, you're going to set yourself up for judgment, self-judgment. 
Well, why did Christ teach Nicodemus the truth of the most well-beloved memory verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16? It must have been because of some very deep theological misunderstanding that Nicodemus had regarding God's dealings with the world. Because Jesus told him, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. God so loved the world. Told him the elemental truth. Here's a guy who has all these degrees, and he's an old geezer, and he says, you've got to be born again. You need to understand the love of God. Nicodemus believed, as did all of the religious leaders and the elites of Judaism, that God's covenant with Israel was meant that only they were the elected ones for salvation, that they were the ones predestined to be saved. Only the Jews could have eternal life. All those Gentiles were just destined for damnation and destruction. And you know something? The Nicodemus theology continues to this day. In the great systems of Christianity, such as Catholicism and Protestantism, whose representatives are the Presbyterians and the Reformed Baptists and the Reformed Church, all believe in some form or another are predestined to be saved. And then the other evangelical counterpart to this is Arminianism, which arose during the 17th century in Europe, which saw the universal dimensions of Christ's death for the world and teaches that Christ's death was sufficient to embrace everyone, but it is not effective until faith is exercised by the one who believes. In other words, Christ offers salvation to all. The atoning sacrifice is an atonement for sin, provided one believes. So there is prevenient grace and means by which God has of reaching mankind with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but man must choose to believe the provisional offer. And that might be expressed in terms of showing some good faith of building a relationship with God. However, Jesus taught the pure truth to Nicodemus when he said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the world. Christ is God's gift to the world. And this gift has a legal basis in that Christ has been constituted the head of the race. And this gift is voluntary in that Christ of his own choice, motivated by his love, pledged himself as surety for sinners when they couldn't make any promises to God to be just so, so right. And Christ uses a legal term. If you go to John chapter 3, verse 17, the next verse after verse 16, Christ uses a legal term to indicate what this means for the world. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And if the world was condemned by God in sending his son, then it would be instantly destroyed because of its sin right now. But it does not stand in a judicial state of condemnation, for according to these scriptures, the world is not condemned right now. And the extent of this divine judicial action embraces the totality of the world. And Jesus went on to teach, however, that the present individual choices with respect to God's gift of Christ can abort the gift, can short-circuit 
God's pardon. In verse 18, it says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. By the way, who brings the condemnation here? Is it God? It's the self-aborting the gift. It is a self-condemnation. And so, the future day of the judgment for the unbeliever becomes a present reality of self-condemnation. Nevertheless, the probationer continues to live briefly because of the gracious life of God given to him or her, and at any time prior to death or the coming of Christ, one may choose life in Christ. And someone in distress writes, I understand justification. I understand the forgiveness of sins. I believe the Bible. I've prayed many times for God to convert me, to let me be born again. But I'm still in that old sinful me state I have always been. Why doesn't he answer my prayers? Believe that he has answered, and he does answer your prayers. Believe that he loves you in Christ. Repent of doubting his faithfulness to you. This is why the Bible says, be ye reconciled to God. Kneel down beside that distraught father there in Mark who is crying with tears and praying, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And you can never perish as you pray that prayer. Someone who is very wise said that. And also remember that your Savior Jesus Christ was tempted as much as you are tempted to doubt that the Father heard his prayers on the cross He was tempted to doubt that his father heard his prayers, and in despair he said, My God, why have you forsaken me? And maybe also remember that it's not your job to judge yourself. For it's true that the closer that we come to Christ, the more unworthy we feel ourselves to be. And this is because the more clearly we see and comprehend his righteousness, the more unrighteous we will appear in our own eyes to be. And so what follows is the more of the new birth that we are experiencing, the more of the new birth we are experiencing, the more we want to be born again. The more hungry we are for the bread of life, the more we want it. The more we pray saying, Father, Father, feed me. And the more we feel naked and long to be covered with Christ's robe of righteousness, The closer we come to Jesus, the more of his robe we want. The more we delight in his holy law, the more we want to obey him. Just sounds backwards, doesn't it? But that's the truth of it all. The closer we come to Jesus, the more we're motivated by his love to obey all of his commandments. So, do you still want some kind of an evidence that you have been born again? You know, something we're born idolaters. We want some evidence, some idol that we can hang on to. Well, let's overcome our idolatry, shall we? Let's go beyond ancient Israel, who never overcame their idolatry to self. Let us worship the unseen God. Let us believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them which diligently seek Him. We walk by faith, not by sight. Learning to believe is your only difficult problem. Fight the good fight of faith, yes. 
To believe in Christ is to let one's little shriveled up, selfish heart be enlarged and quickened or made alive to at least begin to comprehend some of the dimensions of his love. And it's painful, not because the Lord wants to hurt us, but because we have been brought forth in iniquity. And every cell of our souls is self-centered. Kind of like sitting with your legs crossed. What happens to your legs? They go to sleep, don't they? And you lose consciousness in it. And it feels as though your leg is not there. And then when you uncross your legs, you feel a tingle. And what is happening? It's beginning to awake. And there's some painful feelings, aren't there, when it starts to awaken. So when you are being converted, you're being born again, and it tingles with painful feelings. It's always painful to be born, both for the mother as well as the child. Much nicer to stay snug and cozy in mama's womb. But your Creator and your Savior says, no, you come out in the world and you face reality. Be what you are. Share life with the author of life. And the New Covenant Gospel assures you that even though you have left the womb, you are, are still as secure in the battlefields of life as if you were still back in the womb. Because the Lord assures you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so now, instead of being in that cozy-up womb, you're living by faith. And it's exciting living with Christ. Amen? Amen? So now Nicodemus asks, again, this pointed question that troubles every one of us, young as well as old. How can a man be born when he's old? And that word old is geron. Ever heard of gerontology? A doctor who specializes in gerontology is studying the science of growing old. And we're getting gray, aren't we? How can a gray-haired old geezer be converted? Again and again, day by day. And Roman Catholic leaders say that if they can get a hold of a, of a child and train them up to the age of seven, they're going to have him or her for life. And child psychologists pretty well agree that one forms his patterns of thinking and emotional responses by that age of seven. And even a teenager has a de decade of habit patterns of uh, brain highways developing a momentum that is extremely hard to change. A teenager, too, is old. And if you haven't learned to play the violin well by the age of 12, then you're probably never going to be playing at the Lincoln Center in Washington. Now, how can a person be truly converted when he is old? The world says it's impossible, but Jesus took on Nicodemus' question and he said decidedly, yes, you can be born again. Most assuredly, do not marvel, he said. And then he said that this miracle of new birth comes about entirely by the work of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus was right in one respect. 
you cannot rebirth yourself. Jesus hands out no do-it-yourself, be-born-again kits. But God has, but God, Paul got his point when he said from first to last, this has been the work of God. From first to last. God plants the seed of the new birth in your soul like wind, carrying true seeds far and wide, and you can't tell where that gospel seed of hope got blown into your soul, but it will germinate, and if you don't stop it and stamp it out, that seed is going to germinate. It is going to break rocks and concrete, and no human heart is too hard for the Holy Spirit that does that. My daughter bought an apartment several years ago, and in her dining area, she saw something really disturbing happening. There was an uplift right down the middle. And then she looked into the corner, and there was a, a big, ugly half-inch gash all the way up that, up that corner. The wall was splitting apart. Oh, man, I just bought this place for all this mortgage. I'm, I'll never be able to resell it. What's happening here? I'm going to have to camouflage that top. What, what? So she took it to the homeowners association, and they did a little investigation, and they discovered, I forget the name of these trees now, what the name is, but uh, it was a, two trees outside her dining area that had developed into full maturity and struck roots right underneath her dining area and had uplifted the whole area. That tells you the power of God's seed, of the Holy Spirit, in your hearts and in mine. And yes, Nicodemus, when a person is old, he or she can be born again. Jesus said, listen, it happens by looking at Moses' serpent that is lifted up on a pole, just like the Israelites were bitten by the poisonous snakes. And wow. The serpent represents Christ on his cross. Did you notice in today's Sabbath school lesson that Eve was bitten by the serpent? It was a toxic venom. What was that toxic venom? Self-love that would murder the Son of God. And we're supposed to look at a venomous snake that represents Christ. Jesus took our self-love, our self-centeredness, and he overcame all that ugliness on the cross. And by his free choice, he overcame by faith. We need to see in Jesus ourselves. The toxic venom of self-love has bitten us good and hard, and it will would kill us, but for Christ putting it to death. We need to behold that snake on the cross representing Jesus and see how he has changed that self-love into agape for you and for me. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, that's what gives birth. That's what gives birth. I hope every parent here this morning, when you gave birth to a child, it was a product of your love for one another. 
And anyone who's born again is a product of God's pure love, agape, revealed at the cross. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.